And as we come to Leviticus chapter 11, we, we taught these two, verse, these two chapters on Tuesday night, chapters 11 and 12. And we're just plowing right through Leviticus. And a reminder, Leviticus is sort of the handbook of how God wanted his people under the Mosaic Covenant, established about 1500 B.C., there at Mount Sinai with the nation of Israel. It's the handbook. There's a little more details. Like we got instruction in Exodus. We got the, how to build the tabernacle, what it's going to look like. But here we get the handbook on not just religious elements of the relationship with God and how he's worshipped by the Jewish people of covenant for 1,500 years in that covenant, but also some of the practical living and moral expectations and the feast and civil behavior toward one another, all that stuff. And we're trans transitioning from the sacrifices and the priesthood being established to now the dietary law, leprosy, hygiene, things like that, which is very apropos for all that's going on in our world with COVID-19. But tonight, as we pick it up in chapter 11, we've got the foods permitted and the foods not permitted, or what we'd call the dietary law. It's a very interesting chapter. We went through it verse by verse on Tuesday. Tonight, we're not going to do that, but I'm going to survey some things and give you background to this, and we'll, we'll connect it all together as we move toward the New Testament, where the New Testament with Peter on the, on the housetop, we get a scripture interpreting scripture. So we, we understand what this is all about. When we look to the New Testament, it opens this up to us. Because again, in the Old Testament, it's a shadow of things to come, but the fullness is Christ. And even in this dietary law, it's speaking very much of Jesus, who he is and what he would do in his life and what he would entrust to the church and to have a bigger vision for the kingdom of God. So in chapter 11, in these things that you can eat and not eat, as we come to this, up until this time, there are two dietary elements for humanity. There in the Garden of Eden before sin, the animals and humanity were herbivores. They were essentially completely vegan. And without sin, perfect Adam, perfect Eve, perfect human beings. It was a sinless world, and it was a vegan world. There was no death. So it was all this vegetation. In fact, we're actually told, if you remember in Genesis, that God designed the the fruit and vegetables that when Adam and Eve would look at them, they would be drawn to them physically. They'd be like, wow, like, so when you're at the store and mothers, and you see really good organic, you're like, oh, look at these carrots or these beets or whatever. It's that idea. Or when you like really fresh strawberries and they're super sweet, like God put that in us. And that's how it began. Now, after the fall and the expulsion from the garden, we know that Cain, he tilled the land. He, he was a gardener, a farmer. And Abel, he had animals, he had flocks. So we see the introduction of livestock probably in the dietary elements of humanity at that point, but not clearly defined or spoken of. But then when Noah goes on the ark, so 1,600 years go by from the fall of humanity, Noah goes on the ark and God tells him bring extra animals for the food. And then when they get off the ark, God tells Noah with the rainbow, the post-flood world in a new world, as the sons of Adam go out, excuse me, the sons of Noah go out to repopulate the world, and we can all trace our lineage and genealogies through one of those three sons and their families, that all animals are acceptable to eat. So this is a progression, and we get this understanding that now it's not just the herbivore, but clarity that you can eat, you can eat all the animals. It's all there. That's what he says there in Genesis chapter 9. But then when we come to this text, now this chapter, so we've got about from the time of Abraham, that's about 2,500 B.C. to this time, it's about 1,000 years. And suddenly as God separates a people for himself, an ethnic people, 
a nation coming out of their bondage in Egypt, out of the idolatry of Egypt, going toward the promised land, which was filled with idolatry, coming from wickedness of a culture to a culture that's even as wicked or more wicked than the one they're coming from, God sets aside this dietary law for a whole chapter. And he says, these are clean, these are not clean. We talked about this. Sometimes, like your parents, they say, you can do this, but you can't do that. And sometimes your parents will give you an explanation, sometimes they don't. And in this giving, in some cases, God did expand on things. In some cases, he did not. So we know that he said in verse 2 of chapter 11, that as he was speaking to Moses and Aaron, say to the children of Israel, these are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. And they're the animals that divides the hoof and have cloven hooves and chew the cud. So that's your cow, your sheep, animals like that. Then he gave distinctions of animals that maybe do one or the other, but not both, and they were unclean. In fact, he says there in verse 7, they're unclean to you. Their flesh you shall not eat, their dead bodies you will not touch, they're unclean to you. So these are livestock, and God says, you can eat this, you can't eat that. And then in verse 9, he says, these are things in the water. Whatever has the, the fins and scales, seas or rivers, you can eat it. Anything else, you can't. So catfish, eels, scallops, lobsters, they're out. You can't eat those. And even to this day, of course, most of you know that the Jewish dietary law uh, would hold many of these things as, Jew- as modern Judaism practices the dietary law. Um, but we're not under that in the New Testament. I'll get to that in a moment. Then in verse 13, he covers birds, okay, that these cannot be eaten. So you start with the eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, and all these things, and they, they, they cannot be eaten. Now, there, there were birds that were permitted, but not these. And, you know, who wants to eat a bat? But it's on the list. So if you want to eat a bat at that time, no, don't eat a bat. Then in verse 20, we get the, the insects on all fours. And they're all forbidden except the, the grasshopper. And those are the grasshoppers that John the Baptist would have eaten. And if you want to eat in, grasshoppers, you can. John the Baptist certainly did. There you go. Now, then in 24, verses 24 through 28, we get these uh, things about animals that you don't touch when they're dead. You don't touch them. If you carry it, you're, you're unclean. We get that description. Then in verse 29, we're told these things that creep on the earth. So the mole, the mouse, the large lizard, the gecko, sand reptiles, the chameleon, you can't eat those. They're unclean. Well, right. But some countries, they do eat them. There's a lot of countries where people eat lizards, but they were not to eat those things. Then, in fact, if those things even touched uh, an earthen vessel like your picnic paper plate they were to be thrown out and if uh, it was a a regular permanent vessel like a bronze bowl or something you'd scrub it really well because the 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 animal defiles the vessel we'll get more of this on leprosy because when jesus was touched by the leper he healed the leper so we need jesus to break that cycle where something that defiles something clean it defiles the clean and the clean becomes defiled but jesus is the exact opposite not our message tonight we'll get to that with the lepers but we understand that we come forward to verse 41 where it says that everything that creeps on the earth is an abomination. So this is like snakes, all that kind of stuff, just all the things that creep, like the creepy things, like centipedes, you know, whatever, creep, whatever creeps, the things that creep. It's like, ooh, that's creepy, right? Or as the parents would say to their kids, that's blucky. That's, ooh, blucky, blucky, right? So that's not yours. And then we get the understanding of what this is all about, where he says in verse 44, for I am the Lord your God, you shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defy yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law of the animals and the birds and every living creature that moves in the water and every creature that creeps on the earth to distinguish between unclean and clean 
between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. So we get an interpretation contextually of what's going on here is to make a distinction uh, of what is acceptable or not acceptable. So God's, he's saying these things defile you and there's a distinction. So in the Jewish culture, you can imagine as they're going forward and they come into the promised land, it's like, okay, well, we can eat this. We have that. Of course, all the vineyards and olive groves and all that, that was theirs to eat. But then it's like, wow, okay, so this we can eat, but hey, we can't eat that. That's just not for us. Like, well, I want to know why I can't eat a crow's wing. Well, you don't know why. Just God says don't eat it. It's that simple. Well, how come Noah could eat a crow's wing and I can't? It doesn't matter. Like, that's what God had for Noah. It's not what God has for you. And what's interesting about this, in the New Testament, when Jesus was peppered over his uh, washing or not washing his hands and all this stuff, why do your disciples not do this or that? He says, it's, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of a man. For what a man eats is, is eliminated in the digestive cycle. Food doesn't make someone righteous or unrighteous. That's not the issue. It's what comes out of the heart of a man that makes the issue. Sin is from the heart of a man. What you're eating is just what you eat, and it's eliminated. And Jesus said that. Then, in the New Testament, we have the event that we're going to read about here in just a moment with Peter. But even beyond Peter, when the Apostle Paul was writing to Timothy in pastoring a church in the context of ministry, he said to him about pastoring the church that all things can be eaten if they're eaten with thanksgiving. All things. So if you want to eat a crow's wing, hey, fire up the barbecue. Just give thanks to the Lord. So this is the historical context of how these things have worked. And you say, well, why would God say you can eat a crow until, you know, 1500 B.C. at Mount Sinai, and this people group says you can't eat those crows, and then suddenly now he says 2,000 years ago and 1,500 years after this, you can't eat a crow. You know, that's his business. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children, but the secret things belong to the Lord. And sometimes it's just a test. You know, my first day in the ministry, I showed up at Calvary Vista, Gaylord Tohill, he's with the Lord now. He, he wanted to grind me because I was Brian Broderson's surf buddy, and Gaylord was his pastor buddy, so he's going to give it to Joey Brand. And they were building the new sanctuary there at Vista, which is still there, the 885 address there in Vista, off East Vista Way. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to be a pastor. I don't know what to do. I'm, like, really nervous. And Gaylord, they're doing it in, like, the ceiling tiles and all this stuff. He says, hey, buddy, I want you to move all that stuff right there to right there. It's a big pile of stuff, a lot of stuff. I'm like... It's like working for my dad, you know, in landscaping. Like, where's the church stuff, you know, like the, that kind of stuff, you know? It's like, no, I want you to move that to there. And this is in the entry lobby. It took me about an hour of picking up all this stuff and moving it, like, literally, like, 20 yards. I get done. I'm not kidding. I go, what do you want me to do? He goes, move it back where you put it, where you got it from. I was like, you know, you're looking for the camera, like, kind of during COVID. You're like, am I on camera right now? That's just so weird. Like, what's, what's the point? There was no point. You know, it just says, I need you to do what I'm telling you to do, and you just need to do it. There was no explanation for it, but he's the authority over me, and he's testing my ability to submit to that authority, and he made me move one pile from point A to point B. I'm like, this is what my dad did in the Marine Corps. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the, you know, this is what my dad did in the Marine Corps. They did stuff like this at Camp Pendleton, and that's the way it works. That was my first day of ministry. Isn't that interesting? So when you take all this, it's God's universe. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. The secret things belong to the Lord. Now, with that in mind, please turn with me to Acts chapter 10. 
Now, there's some things we get in the Old Testament where you go like, I just don't know. Like, well, you know, like, I just don't know. But obviously, we want to read the Old Testament. We want to grow from it. There's always an application. And when you come what you don't know, you fall back when you do know, always everything in the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus coming on the cross. So don't ever, you know, just know that that's always in play. Jesus is in every book, and it's there for a reason. But as we come to chapter 10, now we're talking about church history. And we're church history. We're the church right now. We're making history during COVID-19. That's who we are. People often say that the church is Acts chapter 29. Because the book of Acts is a historical record of the church, the first 30 years. And chapter 8 concludes with Paul under house arrest. And all church history, anything you can read about church history, is a continuation of that. And so even this day, on August 1st, 2020, we're, we're Acts chapter 29. And we're just, we're still going on. But in the early beginnings of the church... Remember, the church was birthed out of the Jewish faith. Jesus came as the king of the Jews. On the cross, it said, king of the Jews, in three languages, king of the Jews. And so as the, early, the apostles began their early ministry there in Jerusalem, it was toward the Jewish people, their own people, their own ethnicity. They were an ethnic people group. They were people of covenant. And so Peter and the apostles and John would explain to the Jewish people, the apostles' doctrine, that all that was spoken in the Old Testament from the law and the prophets and the Psalms was pointing toward Jesus, and they would help them understand with that Jewish background, knowing the Old Testament, who Jesus is as the King of the Jews, that he came as their Messiah and fulfilled those promises. That's what they did. And in Acts chapter 6, they had their first big conflict, and this was just over two different groups of Jewish people where the Hellenists spoke Greek but not the Aramaic language of the people, or the more proper cultured language. So it was almost like upper middle class looking down on blue-collar lower class. And there was a dispute over this in the distribution of food to the widows. And so Peter and the leaders, they, they said, hey, you guys pick out seven men among yourselves who we can put over this, and they did so. But the first real dispute had an ethnic kind of uh, tension to it between two types of Jewish people, kind of haves and have-nots. Then, as they were scattered under Paul's persecution when he was Saul, they went to Samaria, and those were half-Jews ethnically. They were very mixed. They had kind of a strange religion. They had some Judaism, which is more than the Egyptians ever had, but it was strange. It was like a stew, kind of like how sometimes people just take, pick and choose and make a a spiritual stew. That's what they had. And so Peter and John went there to Samaria, and they preached the gospel, and people got saved, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So these are Samaritans. So they were a mixture of people that the Assyrians brought into the land hundreds of years before when they conquered Israel. See, the Assyrians would displace the native people and replace them with foreign people, keep them on their heels. So the Samaritans were a mixture of that. So now Peter and John have already seen where God gave them the Holy Spirit. So there's a bigger vision for the church. It's not just cultured Jews, but all Jews. It's not just Jews, but even half-Jews, Samaritans. Wow, who would have thought it? And that's where the church is at as we come here. So as they would think about Mark chapter 16, where Jesus says, go preach the gospel to every creature, the creatures in their mind were Jewish creatures. As they would read Matthew 28 and remember what Jesus said about, you know, go make disciples of all nations, he's picturing, they're picturing Jewish disciples within every nation from the dispersion of what they had been through. But here in this text, God's going to expand their vision to a bigger vision as Jesus Christ himself coming to Peter 
to give them a bigger vision. They're not just representing Jesus, King of the Jews, to the Jewish people. They're representing Jesus, the King of Kings, to all people coming in glory in his second coming. So as we pick it up in chapter 10, we have this situation where Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion, he's over 100 people. He's pretty important. You know, he's, he's a, a, like an 05. He's, in, he's up there. You know, he's, he tells people what to do. And he's there on the coastal area of Israel, uh, Caesarea there, and kind of north of Tel Aviv by modern Tel Aviv by about 20, 25 miles. And he has a vision from an angel. Now, he feared God and loved God as best he could understand. Well, he has this vision from an angel that says, go send for Peter down in Joppa. So he goes, sends his people to go get Peter down in Joppa. These men show up, and at the same time they're arriving at Peter's house, we read this. Chapter 10, verse 9. And the next day, as these men that Cornelius had sent drew near to the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. That's noon. And then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw a heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down on the earth. In this sheet were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. These are our unclean animals that we just reviewed in Leviticus chapter 11. And Jesus says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, this is 1,500 years of you don't eat this stuff because it represents unclean people around you. They associated the dietary law of clean and unclean as to their lifestyle with the Lord opposed to the pagan lifestyle and worshiping many gods or false gods. So this is so revolutionary. For Jesus to, to give a vision of unclean animals and tell Peter, it goes against everything, every cell in his body, and how he was raised in the synagogue and what he learned from his rabbis and stuff. It goes against everything. And Jesus says, arise, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord. That's how strong it was embedded in him. <laughs> no, not so, Lord. For I have never eaten common or unclean. See the connection to our text from Leviticus? I've never eaten common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. One more thing to think about contextually if you're Peter, and you're fully Jewish, and how you thought. Let's think about Daniel about 600 years before this. So from about 900 years after receiving that dietary law, Daniel gives us insight as to how the Jewish people thought about it. Because when he was taken away as a captive to Babylon, and there he was educated in the Babylonian at the highest level by their, to learn their language, their lifestyles, their gods, he was given Babylonian food that was contrary to his food. And it said Daniel purposed not to defile himself, and he did not want to eat their food because in his mind, that food represented their gods, their lifestyle, their lawlessness before God, and his clean foods represented his lifestyle, his faith, and his obedience to God. The same faith that had him go in the lion's den at the end of his life is the same faith that had him deny lobster, bacon, and uh, catfish at, at uh, Nebuchadnezzar's banqueting table. Thanks, but no thanks. So this is centuries of thinking like this. And Peter's like, he would know Daniel, and he's thinking like this. And Jesus says, take, eat. (laughs) Wow. And he's hungry too, right? So the timing is good. You know, like you never go grocery shopping when you're hungry, right? You know that, right? Don't ever go grocery shopping with me when I'm hungry. I'm going to start grabbing everything, like 
hostess ho-ho, stuff like you, I haven't eaten in 30 years, like since I was a pro server. I just, I want Twinkies. Like when you, when you're, the hungrier you are, the more random the things are that you grab at the grocery store, right? Best thing you do when you do a grocery shopping is go grocery shopping on a full stomach because you stick to your grocery list. And Jennifer knows if she takes me grocery shopping, there's way more stuff coming home. I'm like, well, let's get that. But you know, the dad's like, when the wife comes up, like, what, why'd we get, why'd we get this? Why'd we get cauliflower? We didn't need a cauliflower. Like, you know, that's what men do, right? The men go somewhere like, hey, let's get the English muffins. Let's get, hey, look at this frozen cake. This is sick. This looks good. Uh, let's get some Trader Joe's ice cream up. Well, that vanilla's really good. And let's get those little cones for Velzy and Zippy. And man, why don't we just get mint and chip too? Like, they got the cones over there too. They're separate. Like, that's what men do, right? So when you're hungry, you're more apt to think I would be willing to eat this. And it's an interesting detail that he was hungry. So when he's super hungry, Jesus shows up and says, hey, eat, eat the catfish. You know, like eat, eat the, you know, hey, there's some bacon. Like, you know bacon smells good. Eat some bacon. He's like, no, no, never, ever, ever. So he gets to three times. He's thinking about it. He's like, hmm, he's thinking about it. And then we read in verse 17. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision had been he had seen meant, like, what's this mean? Like, this is crazy. Like, how am I explain this to the other apostles? Like, Jesus showed up and told me to eat bacon. Like, you know, that's going to be a tough sell at the board meeting on Monday. All right? Behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius' household made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter thought about the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down with them, doubting nothing. For I have sent them. Well, it's like this day just, just keeps getting better by the moment for Peter. Verse 21. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent from Cornelius. And he said, yes, I'm, I'm whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God, has a good reputation among all the nations of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and hear words from you. And then Peter invited them to lodge with them, with him. And on the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. So they spent the night, probably in, under different roofs, maybe, well, because the Jews would never, you know, have, break bread. They'd never be in the same house. Like, so they spent the night, and then they had a long walk. It's about 30 miles. Like the California missions, you know, Father Juniper Sierra set them up about 30 miles apart, which is really smart and brilliant, because uh, a a 30-mile walk is about a full day if you're in pretty good shape. Remember when I did my prayer walk in 08? I got up to 30 miles a day, and I understood, like, the mission walk, like how you would do that. And that's about what they walked. So Peter, the next day, goes with these guys who had just made the walk two days before with some brethren. So he's got a witness of two or more with him on behalf of the church. And he's walking all day, like 30 miles a long walk, right? That's like um, Oceanside to... Well, it's Oceanside of San Juan Capistrano. It's the missions, right? It's Oceanside Mission, Capistrano Mission. As the swallows fly and return, that's, that's a day's walk. So that's a lot to think about. You know, by the way, when you take a long walk, you think a lot. There would be times where you're chit-chatting, and then there's times where you're just like, you're thinking. When I did my prayer walk through the grapevine, I was by myself a lot. And you're thinking. You're thinking like, well, I wonder what this all means. You know, it was 08 before the election in 08, and everything that was at stake. And I was just thinking like, wow, Lord, like, What's it mean? You know, and then you just realize God's got his universe under control and you do the best you can. So he had a long walk. Verse 24. So they show up. The following day they enter Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends as Peter was coming in. So these are all Gentiles, non-Jews. 
Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up and said, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. So Peter walks in this whole household. They're all waiting for him like, like, okay, tell us what we need to know. And then he said in verse 28, Then he said to them, You know how unlawful by God's law it is for a Jewish man to keep company or with go in to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection. As soon as I was sent for, I asked, and for what reason have you sent me? So in that, between the time of the vision and the walk and arriving at Cornelius' house, he put together in his mind the whole vision of the unclean animals and what happened there when God said, take, eat, was God's way, Jesus' way of showing him, don't prejudge anybody, but the gospel's for everybody. So your idea that a Babylonian's like a crow's wing get rid of that, and they don't get to be a part of the kingdom. These unclean foods I'm telling you to eat, it's not about what you're going to eat. It's about who you're going to reach. Let me say that again. It's not about what you can now eat when you're hungry. It's about who you're going to reach with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the lesson. And he figured that out because he said, God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. What do we see in Leviticus 11? Unclean. Distinction. Common. The distinction. And so Peter, processing his mind with the Lord, that it wasn't really about the camel or the, the pork or whatever. It was about people. And there's a bigger vision and a bigger picture here. We pick it up in verse 30. So why did you ask for me? So Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour. At the ninth hour I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard. Your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent you immediately and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we're all present before God to hear all the things commanded you. By God. Well, then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. This is the fullness of the dietary law coming back together again. That, you know, there's people that you think are like an insect or a centipede or a snake. God has a plan for them too. That's really what he's understanding here as he's looking at these Gentiles who he'd never prior to this day would go in their house, break bread with them, have anything to do with them. In fact, he'd walk wide around them when they're coming this way like they're lepers. So he says that, and then he says in verse 36, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, that's how they understood it, right? Jesus, King of the Jews, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism of John the Baptist was preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews, in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Of course, the cross is referred synonymously as the tree and the cross, both Old and New Testament. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. Not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that as he who is ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead, to him all the prophets of the Old Testament witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission or forgiveness of sins. So he preaches the gospel. He's preaching the gospel. This is his Acts chapter 2 message. He's preaching the gospel. Or in Acts chapter 2, he's preaching to Jewish people. Here he's preaching to Gentiles. But it's the same message. We're witnesses. Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the grave. Have faith in him, and your sins will be forgiven. It's the gospel message. 
In verse 44, we close out this context, the historical timeline on this. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word and those who are of the circumcision, that is the Jewish Christians, the church, who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, that is the non-Jews. For they heard the Gentiles speak with tongues and magnify God, even as the church did in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. So then Peter answered and said, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And then they asked him to stay a few days. This amazing day, astonishing events. So astonishing that even in the next chapter of Acts, when Peter goes back to Jerusalem, they're they're kind of like, hey, buddy. Come here. What happened? What happened in, what happened, uh, in uh, Caesarea? Come here. I want to talk about it. You walk in the room. There's like some of the other apostles, like Philip, like, you know, it's not me. It's, you know, it's these other guys, you know. Hey, I want to talk to you, buddy. I want to talk to you. So what happened? Why would you go to that guy's house? What were you doing there? Why would you go in the house? Why are you breaking bread with these guys? These guys are Roman oppressors. These guys are trying to destroy us. They're going to destroy Jerusalem in about 10 years. They're going to expel us from our promised land for 2,000 years. Why are you hanging out with these people? These guys are horrible. What are you doing? Give an explanation. And Peter goes, well, here's what happened. And he told him the story. In fact, Acts chapter 11 is almost like chapter 10 because it's Peter telling the story. It's got a double emphasis in God's word. It's Peter telling the story of what happened. He's like, what was I supposed to do? I'm like giving this great sermon. I'm like, I'm bringing it right to the gospel, like Greg Laurie at Anaheim. I'm right there. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit falls and everybody starts speaking in tongues. I didn't get to finish. I, my clothes was the best clothes ever. I had the ultimate closing to bring people forward. Come forward now. You know, they'll wait for you. I had it all set and bam. Like, that's like pretty much contextual is what happened. It says while he was speaking these words, like me right now, speaking these words, and the Holy Spirit fell. And it's like, well, uh, well, I guess we're done, you know. And they knew something happened. And it was the Lord. The same evidence that the Spirit had fallen on them was the same evidence that God gave the Spirit fell on the church in Acts chapter 2. It's like, who are we to refuse them to be water baptized and identify with Christ? This is the connection of Leviticus 11 with Acts chapter 10. The lesson that God really is teaching here, contextually, of the clean and unclean, we understand is consecration and being set apart. We understand the sanctification of the Jewish people in the Old Testament from their pagan, idol-worshiping neighbors. We understand that. And that really is what the dietary law represented for them. So again, Daniel sees a centipede. That's a Babylonian and how they worship many gods. Daniel sees a, a cow that's clean. That represents Israel and how we worship the one true God. And we open our window three times a day. That's what that dietary law took on in their mindset and how they thought about things and did things. So we understand that consecration and sanctification in the context of Leviticus and even as someone like Peter would have seen it his whole life until this day. But what we really want to think about for a few more moments before we go our way tonight is what this vision is all about. My Bible actually has the title over verse 9, Peter's Vision. My Bible gives little titles and segments, and it says Peter's Vision. We're told this is a vision, and if we could summarize this vision where suddenly all animals are back in play, all centipedes, grasshoppers, snakes, everything, it's all back in play. It's not about what we're eating. It's about the vision of the kingdom and who we're trying to reach and having a bigger vision. That's really what it's about. So the title that we can give 
this vision, is this a vision of, a, of reproof or repentance? No. Is this a vision of uh, fear and terror? No. What is this vision? This vision is a bigger vision. See a bigger world. A bigger vision. Have a bigger vision. So Peter is the foremost leader, the primary teaching apostle in the church. And Jesus says, take, eat when he's hungry. And I've, it's no longer common or unclean. I need you to have a bigger vision. And it wouldn't be Peter who would go to the Gentiles, but it would be Saul of Tarsus who became Paul the Apostle who would go to the Gentiles. And in one generation, this gospel message that Peter was entrusted with that day at Cornelius' household, this gospel message would go forth throughout the entire Greek-Roman world, the, 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 the most powerful kingdom in the history of humanity at that time, and go out into the highways and the byways and transform their culture and their world and give us the New Testament writings of the apostles. This gospel message will be taken by the apostles. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, written about 400 years ago, in Fox's Book of Martyrs, he uh, collaborates all the information and the traditions and the history of the early apostles and how they all died. And according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, every single apostle, except for John, who had the vision in the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos, every single apostle died going out beyond the Roman Greek world toward the east, like Marco Polo did when he was motivated to go to the Mongols and the Chinese around 1100 AD, going east. And they went out. And if you even look at the, the founding of America and these people that came in the early going, they went out for the church. And the church builds hospitals. The church builds schools. That's what the church does. The church helps people become right with God. The church is a good thing. And where Jesus Christ is Lord and the Holy Spirit is poured out, wherever the church goes, whether it's Romania, Chile, Papua New Guinea, Tonga, China, Vietnam, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, wherever the church goes, it makes the world better for that individual and where the church is allowed freedom, it builds churches. It raises communities. You look at uh, West Bentley and far-reaching ministries and all that they've done in Russia and Mexico and Sudan and stuff. They've, they've built places where people are safe. They've built, they've elevated the education system. They've elevated the women to have the same opportunity as the men in these cultures that previously were so oppressive against women. And they've, they've fed people. They're, even right now, Wes Bentley is, is sending almost all of his resources around the world to feed people. Because right now, people need food all over this planet right now. It's a desperate situation, much different than ours. That's who we are. We're the church. And the bigger vision that Jesus gave Peter on this day at high noon is the bigger vision entrusted to us to this day here at Worship Generation on August 1st, 2020. We are an extension of this bigger vision because unless you've got Jewish ethnic blood in you, which is great if you do, we're Gentiles. And somebody, those apostles went somewhere and told someone and passed the baton and it's been passed down, passed down, passed down to where at some point we all came to a saving faith or maybe you haven't, but you're here and we want you to to faith in Jesus Christ. It's a bigger vision. And I've been thinking about this this week as knowing, of course, these passages connect, that we, that we, that I, that I would have a bigger vision, we would have a bigger vision. Because as I've mentioned, we see people retracting. We see the church afraid. You know, like, I mean, Supreme Court rulings against Calvary Chapel, uh, government, governor decrees against churches that, you know, at times have been discriminatory against churches, maybe not. We know that many governors that are emboldened against faith have acted upon that ruling from the Supreme Court a week and a half ago where Roberts dissented to the left 
and they ruled against Calvary Chapel, and you can have more people in a strip club, more people in a cannabis store, and more people in a box store than you can at a church in the state of Nevada. And Calvary Chapel tried to say, that's not fair. Stop this governor from doing this. And the Supreme Court heard that in a, in a, a rapid thing, and they ruled against Calvary Chapel. And so maybe you've seen this in the news. This has been very big news, uh, national news, and it's unsettling. It's unsettling that a court that now becomes more powerful than almost anything on the planet determines that we're less important and we don't have the same rights as people going to these other things. And it is discriminatory. And that's tough. But, you know, like, we've had a pretty good run for about 250 years. And if we're going to get some discrimination against faith in Jesus Christ, it's what we're going to get. Because we got brothers and sisters all over the world that face this at the highest level in just about anything and everything they do. So it's not that unusual. It's hard to see in America, and the reason people want to come here is so they don't have discriminatory action against them for their faith and being able to express their views. It's been well said that in America, you're free to say anything you want about communism, but in a communist country, you're not free to say anything about anything. And, you know, this is what we're facing. These are the things that we're facing. But we can't be unsettled by this, and we can't be in retraction. We can't be in retraction because of fear of government and fear of men, even when it seems like our own government that so long has protected us, seems to be turning against us. We can't be in fear of government. Just that's, forget that. Take that thought captive. And we can't be in fear of pandemics because the church has come through a lot of pandemics. And by the way, all those young people not sure about your school, excuse me, listen to me. I was reading about Sir Isaac Newton. It was very interesting. Considered the greatest scientist of all time. Loved Jesus, six-day creationist. You know, uh, lived in the late 1500s, uh, excuse me, late mid-1600s into the 1700s. Do you know that when he was at college, during the middle of his college career, if you will, at Cambridge. Two years, he couldn't go to college. You know why? The Black Plague. Sir Isaac Newton, I, I, I read this the other day. I go, oh my goodness, there's nothing new under the sun. We got all these kids going away to college and these things coming up in the next few weeks. Sir Isaac Newton, considered the father of all modern science, who feared God and was a six-day creationist, and the peak of his education in that young adult life had to not go to college for two years because of the Black Plague in England. Isn't that interesting? So we don't need to fear the plague, and we need to realize there's nothing new under the sun. We need to fear God. We need to walk in wisdom, of course. Don't fear government, and don't fear plagues. We are indestructible until God's done with us. Now, we exercise common sense, of course. That's what we want to do. And we want to be the most law-abiding citizens we possibly can, so long as King of Kings Jesus rules over that which would be contrary to him. And hopefully we don't have to face that down the road, but it would seem like maybe we're going to, and we'll just cross that bridge when we get to it. Until then, enjoy August 1st and have a great barbecue on August 2nd. You live in Huntington Beach. You live in Orange County. Enjoy life. Enjoy the journey. But don't lose our vision because we're not about retracting, 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 and what we can hold on to, like I said last week, but we really need the vision for expanding. So I challenge myself. I challenge you. I challenge all of us. I challenge the entire body of Christ. See a bigger vision. What is a bigger vision for the kingdom of God in your life our church, the Calvary Chapel movement, the Bible-believing church throughout America to the ends of the earth. Think of what we've done since COVID-19. We, we, we just invested tens of thousands. We, we just, we invested, we pretty much, we just put all in. And we've done so much to help other people. How many of you read the newsletter I forwarded this week of uh, Luis in Venezuela and his life? Raise your hand, just get a general idea. Okay, did you see the picture of his son, you know, working construction? Luis, his son, he's in that newsletter, and he's digging. He's working in Miami in 90-degree heat right now. Well, they got a hurricane coming tomorrow, but he'll be doing cleanup. He's from Venezuela, where they can't go outside without a mask on under any circumstance or be beaten and, and arrested. 
And the surfers in Venezuela I follow, they can't go surfing. They can't go to the beach. They can't just go down Huntington Beach and walk on the boardwalk without a mask like me and my wife. They cannot even go to the beach. And if they go outside, they have to wear a mask or they're arrested. That's Luis's world. His son is in America working a job that none of us would want, building a high-rise in Miami in August so he can have a better life and the opportunities that we grew up with. See, that's the kingdom of God. We need to see the kingdom advancing. He loves the Lord, too. His son loves the Lord. I know that from what Luis has told me. And, you know, Luis fell like from 30 feet. He fell in an accident, and he survived it. It's no easier to fall from 30 feet there than it is here, and the recovery is the same. Like, he doesn't have Kaiser. He's got the Venezuelan government. And like all of us, he's just trying to rebuild his life. This man had an incredible ministry with young people, with surfing, with baseball. He's Christian Surfers Venezuela. Like, this guy has given away hundreds and hundreds of my movie in Spanish to people all over Venezuela. We need a bigger kingdom. We've sown into him. We've sown into Russia. We've sown into Ukraine. We've sown all over the world. And I've got places I want to sow into in the next two months that we've never even sown before. We've sown into Bangladesh now where they don't even have food. Our vision is how can we, with this bigger vision that Jesus gives when he lays down the camel, the bat wing, and everything else and says, take, eat. It's all there. So what I want us to do and think about going forward in August is, For our Jerusalem, how can we have a bigger vision? For our Samaria, our country, a bigger vision. And for the ends of the earth, how can we have a bigger vision? And how can we impact people and encourage them in Christ and encourage those who are reaching people for Christ in other parts of the world? How can we be a part of that? How can we put our DNA on that and help enable that and encourage that and join in that fruit when we're all gone off this planet in 100 years? And it's passed on to our children's children if the Lord tarries. The bigger vision is for the gospel going forth to every creature, every tongue, tribe, and nation, starting in our own hearts, in our own home, in our own community. And, I mean, we just we want to go for it. And I'll, I'll close with this. Jack Hibbs up there in Chino Hills, he released the DVD this week where he was talking about, because he, he's very optimistic. He's optimistic about the kingdom. And he, he was talking about how they are over, they're just, they're being, people are coming from all over that dozens and dozens of people are making first-time commitments to Jesus Christ at their church as word's going out, that the gospel's going out. And he says he's been in ministry for 40 years and never seen anything like he's experiencing right now. We know with Greg Laurie and the Harvest Crusades online, he's reaching more people than he's ever reached before. And this is how we want to think, not retracting in fear, but expanding in faith with a bigger vision with our life personally, this church the Calvary movement, and the kingdom of God as a whole. And that's what I'm seeking from the Lord, and I hope that's what you're seeking from the Lord. I want to encourage us, have faith, be optimistic. These things are real. Yes, they are. And what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do? Well, we're going to be faithful, and we're going to stay in the moment. That's what we're going to do. We're going to be faithful, and we're going to stay in the moment. But get the vision that expands. So if you find yourself retracting in fear, just say, Lord, that's not you. Remember Prokhanov there in Russia? He was the optimist. And no matter what was going on with the, the Bolsheviks and the Soviets, he was forever optimist. And even when he was in exile in Germany in 1935, during the rise of Hitler and all the stuff that was already happening, he still was laying out a vision and a plan to reach more people than ever before in the nation of Russia before he passed away in exile. That's who I want to be. That's who you want to be. So let's expand our vision. Let's seek the Lord in the month of August. Let's press in and let him speak to us. Amen?